0: listening to the Central Students Podcast. To learn more about Central Students, including our gathering times, visit us online at centralstanfordnet slash students. Just a heads up, the passage of Scripture that we are going to talk about tonight is probably one of the most controversial passages of Scripture in the New Testament. It is something that a lot of people and Christians have argued about for a long time. And you know when I was thinking about all right what do I what, what do we want to talk about tonight you know I think that there is a temptation when you get to difficult passages of scripture especially like when you're preaching and stuff especially when you're preaching to like students and everything that there's a temptation to just skip it like you know what we'll kind of just act like that's not there we'll just kind of keep going but I think that that would be irresponsible, and I think that that would be doing a disservice to you. And what I want us to be able to do is I don't want us to run from Scripture. I want us to run to Scripture, especially Scriptures that can be difficult for us to understand. So I say that, uh, and we're just going to just give you a little bit of background. So if you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, uh, we've been going through a study in the book of Hebrews. And Hebrews is written by an unknown author, uh, but it's written to a group of Christians that, uh, or Jewish Christians. So they were raised in Judaism and they end up, uh, you know, putting faith in Christ, professing faith in Christ, becoming Christians. And because of that, there's a lot of Persecution that they were going under. There was a lot of, you know, struggles and trials that they were experiencing, and because of that, they were uh, being tempted to leave the faith and go back to Judaism. They're they're being tempted to leave Christianity altogether and go back to Judaism. And the author of Hebrews is pleading and encouraging them not to do so. So last week we talked about this idea that Jesus is our true and better High Priest and we saw that our relationship with God because he is our high priest we see that our relationship with God is not based on our performance but rather it's based solely on Christ's goodness on our behalf so just like in the old testament the high priest would go into the holy of holies the high priest would go into the presence of God to present sacrifices on behalf of the people When we say that we place our faith in Jesus and he is our high priest, we say that Jesus enters into the presence of his Father and presents himself the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. That's what we're talking about. So we're talking about how we say our relationship with God the Father is through God the Son. And apart from God the Son, there is no access to the Father. Because apart from the Son, there is no high priest capable of presenting you before him. Right, so we talk about this idea that, that we are able to have access to God because of Jesus standing in our place. He is the man in the middle. He is the mediator between us and God. And this is good news, right? This should bring you a lot of peace and comfort and joy to your heart. It should give you confidence that you can approach God with boldness, knowing that he will not reject you if you have a saving relationship with him through Jesus, Right? That's good news. The author of Hebrews has been reassuring these struggling believers of the goodness of a life with Jesus and a life in Christ. And although they are being tempted to leave the faith, he reiterates the fact that Jesus is better. And here's something I want you to know. If you're ever struggling with your faith and being, you know, struggling, here's what I want you to know. And you can pretty much sum the book of Hebrews up you know, in this. It's like Jesus is better. Whatever you would be tempted to go back to, Jesus is better than that. Right? If you're here and you're struggling, you know what, I'm I'm really tempted to go back to this group of friends. You know what, hey, look, Jesus is better. Or I'm really struggling, I really am desiring to go back to this lifestyle. You know what, Jesus is better. And what, He's saying, as he's talking, and he goes back throughout the book of Hebrews leading up to this point, and he is emphasizing to them that their former life of Judaism was a type and shadow of a better life in Christ. That Jesus is the, is, he is better than the angels, he is better than Moses and the law, he is the mediator of a better covenant, he is the true and better high priest for his people, and so on. So while all of this is true, we would be remiss if we fail to mention another aspect of the book of Hebrews. The author of Hebrews gives reasons to not leave the faith, which we've talked about over the past, you know, several weeks. However, he also gives warnings about what happens when we do. He gives warnings about what happens if you were to reject Christ. In the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, he begins this warning. So what I want us to do is I want us to read these verses, and it's very important that tonight that you focus in on what I'm telling you, because we have a lot of content to cover, and it's very, very important that we understand this passage in its entirety, okay? You with me? Anybody alive? All right, all right, sweet, sweet. Okay, Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. For, the land that ha, for land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and at its end is to be burned. Here, just pray with me real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, God, I ask that you would help me to do what I cannot do on my own, that, God, you would allow me to take a back seat to your Holy Spirit, and that you would speak. God, give us wisdom to be able to hear what it is that your scripture says. Father, help us to leave this place encouraged, challenged, convicted, and inspired to pursue a true and meaningful life in you. God, I thank you. I praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So we talk about this being a warning. Well, what is the warning that he is giving? What is he warning them about? So he's warning them about rejecting Christ. He's warning them about rejecting Jesus. Now, in order to warn someone about doing something, you have to explain to them what that thing is that you're warning them not to do. So that's what he does. He's saying, do not reject Christ, and then he's going to explain what rejecting Christ looks like. He explains what it looks like in verses 4 through 8, which we just read. Then he's going to contrast those who reject Christ with those who truly place their faith in him in verses 9 through 12. So let's read that. It says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So he gives a warning in verses four through eight, then he contrasts those individuals by saying this, yet in your case, we feel sure of better things right so these are people who have rejected Christ but when i'm talking about you i'm confident of better things what are those better things that he is confident in he is, Those better things are things that belong to salvation you see that so he believes so if he believes better things for them namely things associated with salvation then what is he saying in contrast about the people he explained in verses 4 through 8 he is saying that clearly these are things that are not associated with salvation Look again verse 10 for God is not unjust. Then verse 11 it says and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So he is warning them and he is reasoning and his reason for doing so is so is because he wants them to know a couple things. One, God is just. And two, he desires them to have correct and full assurance. He wants them to have confidence in their faith, but confidence that is true, not confidence in something that is false. And I want you to know that what I desire for you tonight as you leave this place is I want you to have confidence in where you are with God. I want you to have assurance. I don't want you leaving this place wondering where you are with God. So here's the hope. The hope is that tonight, whether you are a Christian or not, you will not wonder by the time you leave. You'll know. Hopefully. And that's what he's trying to do with them here. So the people in verses 9 through 12 are people that have a true relationship with Christ and have assurance of this truth. The people in verses 4 through 8 are those that do not have a saving relationship with Christ and seem to have a false assurance. He is warning them about the dangers of believing themselves to be saved when they're not. And what we're going to talk about first tonight is we're going to talk about false assurance. There's one thing that I fear, especially as I preach, is I fear that people think themselves to be saved when when they're not. I fear that when I share the gospel with somebody, they walk away thinking that they have a salvation that they do not have. And some of you are like, what do you mean? In 2020... Not that long ago, Pew Research did a study that found that 65% of adults in America claim to be Christians. While this number has steadily been declining over the years, 65% is still a remarkably high number, if you think about it. Like, if you think about it, you you know, 65%. So, like, for every 100 people you walk by, do you really believe that 65 of them are true, spirit-filled, born-again believers? We would all probably agree and say no. Right, If 65% of American adults were true, born-again, filled with the Holy Spirit Christians, then I think America would look a lot different than it does. In fact, just recently, Probe Ministries uh, recently released the results of its Religious Views and Practices survey. Listen to the results of this survey. I just want you to listen to this. Nearly 80%. Of young Catholics, eighteen through thirty-nine, so ages eighteen through thirty-nine. These are people who are who professing Catholics. Eighty percent are uncertain if Jesus lived a sinful life, or are uncertain if Jesus lived a sinless life. Over sixty percent of professing born again Christians believe that Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad are all equal in regard to a path to salvation. According to another Pew Research study, 25% of professing Christians do not agree with the biblical view of who God is. According to the State of Theology survey conducted by Ligonier Ministries, 33% of evangelical Christians either reject or are unsure about the claim that Jesus is God. In Britain, 25% of Christians deny that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, these aren't non-Christians that they're surveying and interviewing. These are Christians. And these aren't, like, controversial topics of our faith. These aren't open-handed issues like Calvinism versus Arminianism or when do you think Jesus is coming back. This is, like, core doctrines. These are doctrines that if you don't believe them, you're not Christian. I want you to know that we are not saved by knowledge. Thank God for that. You are not saved by knowledge, but you cannot be a Christian and reject these things. Jesus is God. Jesus lived a sinless life. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus is the only way of salvation, and the God of the Bible is the true God. If you reject any of those, you are not a Christian, but these are people who claim to be Christians. So what does that tell us? Well, it doesn't take a doctorate in theological studies to see that many people claiming to be Christians today are sadly mistaken. What does this mean? It means that there are a large portion of people in America that are convinced of a salvation that they do not have, and they expect to go to heaven when they die, only to be mistaken. And that is what the author of Hebrews is warning against. When we are faced with this reality, we have to ask ourselves, how is this possible? How is it possible that people can think themselves to be Christians when in reality they aren't? And what I'm going to say is probably going to upset some people. And I like to call this a space-making sermon. What I mean by that is, if you notice, it's very crowded in here tonight. The thought is that after a sermon like this, next week there will probably be a little bit more room in here. I believe that the reason that this is such a widespread issue is because of popular Christianity and many churches and Christians around us today preach a gospel of easy believism and they do not preach a true gospel. We have preachers, pastors, evangelists, and other Christians that preach in cliche statements and they refuse to get into hard truth. Out of a desire to grow the size of their influence or a desire to have the appearance of a health that they do not have or out of a desire of self-preservation, they preach what will get people to make a decision rather than preach a gospel that can truly save. How many people can I get to raise their hand and pray a prayer? And that's what motivates their preaching, not is this a gospel that saves? And some of you are like, what are you talking about, Mike? Here's the thing, I see it all the time. I see it all the time. I see it on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Not only that, I've seen it in person several times. I have been to campus ministries with other churches where this is the gospel that they preach. They say this. They say, this is where I was in my life. All this bad stuff that was going on. But then Jesus came into my life and I realized how much he loves me and I asked him to come into my life. I started going to church and now I have so much joy and I want you to know that God loves you too and he has a plan for your life and that is, and that is better than the hurt that you've seen all around you. And if you want God to do the same for you, stand up where you are. And then 30 or 40 kids stand up. Why? Because everyone wants Jesus to make their life better. Everyone wants that people are not standing up because they're broken over their sins and they know that they're incapable of being made right with God apart from the blood of Jesus on their behalf. They are standing up because what they heard appeals to their flesh rather than confronts it. Then the pastor or the volunteer or the leader leaves that place praising God that 40 kids got saved. I have been to places where they have done this. And they're like, hey, we had 40 kids get saved. And I'm like, two of them are kids that I baptized. The reason they're standing is because you did not give a clear gospel. And you have students that will leave that place thinking themselves saved. And what happens? Fast forward a couple years. They're struggling. They're questioning whether they're truly saved. And that student feeling convicted of the sinful lifestyle that they have continued on in. So what do they do? They go to their pastor or a leader, and, what do they, and they say, you know, hey, I'm struggling, I don't know if I'm saved. And this, what does the pastor or the leader or whatever, what do they do? They say, well, did you ever ask Jesus to come into your heart? The person says, yeah. And then they say, well, were you genuine when you did it? Is like, yeah, I was genuine. I was absolutely genuine. You know what the person says? They say, then you're saved. And then any other questions that you have, that's just the devil trying to bother you. So what happens? That's, that student leaves, no closer to Christ than when they came in, comforted in their sin, and lost because their faith is in how genuine their prayer was, not in the blood of Christ. That's how you have people that do not, that think that they're saved when they're not. That's how you get the statistics, the statistics that I just read to you. That's how people think themselves to be saved when they aren't. And that's how you get what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say, how many? A lot? Yeah, Many. I think that we, we, just over, we, we just look over that. Jesus says, many people will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's not about do you know Jesus. It's does Jesus know you? See, if I walked to the White House, and I went and I knocked on the front door, I was like, hey, is the president there? And, and, what are they, they're going to drag me out. I'm like, to no, no, no. Like, I, know, I know the president. There's one thing for me to say I know the president. It's another thing for the president to come to the door and be like, oh, that's Mike. What's the difference? The difference is not if I know the president. It's just, does the president know me? Does it bother you? Like, think about this, really. Does it bother you that the gospel invitation that we see in so many churches today is not found anywhere in the Bible? Like, does that bother you? That what you are seeing people put their faith in, how, like, hey, come to the front, raise your hand, ask Jesus into your heart, that's not in the Bible anywhere, nowhere. When Peter preaches at Pentecost, what does he do? He preaches the truth and he says, repent. He doesn't say, raise your hand, or come up to the front, or or, stand up. Hey, everybody, we got Christians now. No. Let's get back to the text. Let's read verses four through eight again and see how how the author describes these individuals. I'm sorry, I'm so passionate about this because it's so important. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift have shared in the holy spirit have tasted the goodness of the word of god and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the son of god in their own harm and holding him up to contem- excuse me to contempt now when we look at this passage when we look at these individuals explained here it's important for us to see a couple things first thing that we need to see is that these are people that have had some genuine and true spiritual experiences i mean let's just look at them the first thing that we see is one they have been enlightened the greek word for enlightened here is talking about someone that has been spiritually made aware of the truth their eyes have been opened right light has shined into the darkness. These are people that have actually heard a true gospel. Their eyes have been opened to the truth. And it's the same word that's used in John chapter 1, verse 9, where it says the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. It's this idea that the lights of their spiritual eyes have been turned on by, and now they see the truth. What else do we see? We see, too, that they have tasted. The word taste here is to insinuate uh, like attesting. Right, to try it out. It's kind of like, you know, if you're anything like me and you go to like, um, like, if I go to an ice cream place, I pretty much know what I'm going to get every single time. I'm going to get cookies and cream. It's just the way I do it, okay? You know, love me or hate me, right? But if I go to a fro-yo place, if I go to a frozen yogurt place, I'm typically what i want to do is they give you like this little like, those little things, those paper things that typically you put ketchup in, you know what I'm trying to say, Right? And then, like, what do I do? First of all, I'm going to try a bunch of them, and I'm just going to test it out. I'm not getting a bunch. I'm just going to get enough to test it. And that's what it's talking about here. This, this, that's what this idea of tasted is trying to convey. So what is it that they have tasted? What is it that they have tested? One, we see the heavenly gift. Now, the heavenly gift here seems to insinuate the gift of a new life in Christ. So these are people that have tested out what a relationship with Christ looks like. They've prayed the prayer. They've sang the songs. They've gone to camp. They've done all the things that a typical Christian does in response to being saved. But notice that they simply tasted it. The word taste is also used in reference to Jesus in Matthew 27, verse 34, where where the scriptures say that they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So in a sense... Jesus tasted the wine, but refused to fully partake of it. And what we're seeing here is that these are people who have tasted what a relationship with Christ looks like, but they have not fully partaken of it. They've tested it. What else have they tasted? They've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They have heard the word preached. They've even maybe applied its principles to their life. They quote the verses that say God is love or they quote the verses that say that, they should, that we should look out for the poor. They have tested it. They may, even, they may even know it really well and have probably committed it to memory. They could probably recite it to you. John 5, verses 39 through 40, what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, you can study the Bible all day long and all night long. You can study the Bible repeat, repetitively. You can commit to memory as much scripture as you possibly can. But if your reading of the scriptures does not draw you to the one that the scriptures are about, then it is all for nothing. If your reading of the Bible does not draw you to the one that the Bible testifies about, then what are you doing? What else have they tasted? They've tasted of the powers of the age to come. They've seen the influence that the gospel has made in the lives of other people. They have seen miracles. The power of God. They've seen incredible signs and wonders. Both the, and here's the thing. Both the experiences of miracles and the power of the word of God are done where? Typically, they are done within the community of a church. So what can we assume? We can assume that these are people that attend church regularly. They are people who have come to church and probably are there all the time. If you're not careful, it's starting to sound like I'm explaining some of us. What else have they done? They've shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a difficult one. These are people who have encountered the Holy Spirit. They have seen him work in the lives of those around them. Perhaps they have even experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit in their life. Now pay attention to what I'm going to say. Because it's very, very, very important. Experiencing the Holy Spirit does not mean that you are saved. Encountering the Holy Spirit does not mean that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit. Just because you felt the Holy Spirit move while you were at camp does not equate you being saved. Just because you cried at staycation does not mean that you have a saving relationship with Christ. Some of you are probably thinking, hey, but I thought you said that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the seal of the guarantee of our salvation, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And I would say that you are correct. However, there is a difference between encountering the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. I can bump shoulders with the Holy Spirit. See, conviction of sin is an act of the Holy Spirit, but it is not salvation. You can be a part of the working of the Holy Spirit and not be saved. Hear me, it is not enough to be convicted of sin. You must also repent. It is not enough to feel bad for what you have done. It isn't just that the Holy Spirit shows you your sin. The proper response to this conviction is the difference. How do you respond to the Holy Spirit? So let's look at all this again. Let's look at all this in one piece. It is possible to be enlightened with truth. It is possible to hear the gospel proclaimed, understand it, and have it make total sense to you. You can experience incredible blessings from God in your life and in the lives of others around you. You can hear the goodness of the word of God and even apply its principles. You can study the word of God and commit it to memory. You can experience the Holy Spirit during a worship service. You can have the Holy Spirit make you aware of your sins and see him moving in your life and in the lives of people around you and still be lost and still headed to hell. You could pray the prayer and be baptized and it all be for nothing. Why? As we skip down in Hebrews 6, because none of these things belong to salvation. Now, do saved people experience these things? Yes, absolutely we do. But they are not saved because of these things. You are not saved because of your experiences. And and please hear me when I say this. Do not put your faith in your feelings. Do not put your faith in your feelings. Do not put your faith in how you feel in the moment. Because your feelings will deceive you. Your feelings will deceive you. So, not only are these people that have had true, genuine spiritual experiences, but there's a second part to them, and they have fallen away. These are people that have rejected Christ. They have not persevered in the faith. They have turned away from the truth, and they are now at a point where it is impossible for them to repent. Again, listen carefully to what I am saying. This does not mean that God cannot forgive someone who is genuinely repentant. That's not what that means. This does not mean that you cannot receive forgiveness if you are repentant. It is saying that it is impossible for particular individuals to be restored to repentance. It's saying that they cannot repent. Not that if they did repent, God would reject them. It's saying that they can't repent. They won't repent. It is impossible for them to repent. How? How? How is this true? Because when someone continues to reject Christ and reject Christ and reject Christ, even after all of the firsthand experiences that we just talked about, there is a point where God says that it is impossible for them to return. And to show you that I'm not making this up, Jesus talks about this when he calls it blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And calls it the unforgivable sin. Now, if you're concerned, have I committed the unforgivable sin? If you're worried about that, probably not. But what is this unforgivable sin? Matthew 12, verse 31 through 32, Jesus talks about it. He goes, Therefore, I tell you, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven of people. That's good to know. That every sin and every time I've blasphemed God, He will forgive me. That is good news. That's good news. But blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, to help us understand what he's talking about here, it's important for us to understand the greater context in which he says this. Jesus just healed the demon-possessed man. He's a man who is possessed by demons, and Jesus does what Jesus does. Wah, wah, wah. Guy no longer possessed by demons, right? And what happens, the Pharisees say that it is by the power of Satan that he's doing this. They accuse him of, they accuse him of saying that he casts out demons by the power of demons. Which doesn't make sense, but that's what they accuse him of. But notice that they are first-hand witnesses of Christ's power, and they still reject him. They watched him do it. And Jesus then will respond with what we just read. Notice, though, that he says that you can reject the Son of Man and still be forgiven. But if you reject the Holy Spirit after firsthand experience of him, there is a point where God draws the line. Now, here's the thing. I do not know where that line is. I don't know how far. But that's not the point. The point is not how close can I get to that line. The point is there is a line. And I don't want to cross it. If your question in your mind is, well, how far is it? Then you don't get it. You don't get it. Then what happens after you've crossed that line? What happens is that your heart, your heart begin, your, your heart, excuse me, begins to harden. You become calloused to the moving of the Holy Spirit as you continue in your love of sin and your rejection of Jesus. You become like those that Paul speaks about when he's writing to Timothy, when he says that their consciences are seared. Let me explain to you what this idea, when it, say, when it talks about like they have a seared conscience, what does that mean? So when dealing with cattle, which I've never done a whole lot of, but when dealing with cattle, a lot of times you have to trim their horns because it can cause issues for them. Especially a lot of times with like certain like goats and different things like that, what happens is their horns will go back and if, you're, if you don't trim them, then it'll like dig into them and it can cause them a lot of issues. So you have to trim them. And typically this is a very painful and bloody endeavor for the animal. So what happens is that they take this blistering hot iron and they press it onto the horns. And it hurts for a moment, but the pain quickly goes away. Why? Because what they have done is they have burned the nerve endings in the horn. They burn them off so that they can now cut the horns and the animal doesn't feel it. Why? Because, now, because, they, because all the nerve endings have been killed. And we talked about a seared conscience. That's kind of the, the illustration that he's giving here, is that what we have is that we have people, that it is impossible for them to be brought back to a place of repentance because they have rejected the Holy Spirit so often after even experiencing him so much that their consciences, which is their sense of guiltiness towards God, has become numb to their sinfulness. Their pride prevents them from humbling themselves before God. And when someone refuses to humble themselves before God, there is no salvation. How do we know that? James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want to receive the grace of God and the mercy of God? It starts with humility. It starts with humility. So the author of Hebrews also introduces another idea. He says that these people who have done this are once again crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Now, there's a lot in there, and we're not going to dive into super depth there. But obviously, we know that these people are not actually crucifying Jesus a second time. We know that. Why do we know that? Because Hebrews, later on, talks about this idea that Jesus died once, and he dies once. He doesn't die repeatedly. He dies once. So what does this mean? So when, you're first, when you first-hand experience the goodness of God through all of the things that we've just talked about, through the encountering of the Holy Spirit, you know, seeing Him work in your life and all these amazing things, and you choose to walk away from Him, you are holding Him up to public shame and harming yourself. You are proclaiming to the world You're proclaiming to the world that your sinful lifestyle and the things of this world are better than what you have experienced in Christ. And you hold him up to shame, like the shame he had on the cross. So, here's the question. Question that I I have gotten asked, I feel like, a million times. And when you read this verse, you're probably like, asking this question. Is this passage teaching that you can lose your salvation? I think it's important for us to know, right? I mean, upon upon first glance, it absolutely seems that way. It absolutely seems like that's what he's saying. However, here's something I want you to know. When you read scripture, we must always allow scripture to interpret scripture. So what I mean by that is this, is that we must allow the Bible to interpret itself. So whenever there are verses that seem to teach something, you must ask yourself this, does this align with everything else I know to be true in the Bible? And if it doesn't, then chances are you're misunderstanding that verse. So what must you do? You must study it and study it and study it until it aligns with the rest of Scripture. So, what does the rest of Scripture have to say about the assurance of salvation? I am glad you asked. John 10, 28 through 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it So, to the praise of his glory. Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. I love that. John six thirty nine, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Philippians 1, 6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice that your salvation is not secured by you. Your salvation is secured by Christ, and Christ does not lose things. If your salvation was up to you, we would all be in trouble. The thought that Jesus' blood is enough to save you, but not enough to keep you saved is too low a view of the blood of Christ. Revelations thirteen eight, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, talking about, you know, Excuse me, we're talking about the, this, the beast, right? Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lame who was slain. So this idea of the book of life, right? right? We find your name in the book of life saying that you are saved, you have a relationship with Christ. Hey, come on into heaven, right? This idea of the book of life. Notice, when were the names written in the book? Before the foundations of the world. Notice, something about the book of life is when were the names written? They were written before the foundation of the world, which means that God is not writing down names and then scratching them out. They're in there permanently because we have a God that sees all things and knows all things. The author is not saying, be careful that you don't lose your salvation. He's saying, be careful of thinking that you are saved when you're really not. And that's what I want to tell you tonight. Be careful of thinking that you're saved when you're not. And how can we know if we are really saved? Do you endure to the end? That's how you know. Matthew 24:13. Jesus says, "But the one who endures to the end will be saved." Hebrews 3, 12 and 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. What leads people to fall away from God? It's an unbelieving heart. A heart that has not been changed. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold... Our original confidence firm to the end. Notice what it says there. Look at the the phrasing of that. We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Notice the structure of the verse, right? The future, right? The future of if we hold our confidence firm to the end is what validates the past. We have come to share in Christ. So your perseverance will be evidence of the legitimacy of what you did in the past, if you, do not, if you do not continue in Christ, then that is proof that you never began in Christ. And you got to be careful when you say that because a lot of people will say, well, I used to be Christian, blah, 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 and when you just tell people, hey, like, you were never a Christian, they're like, oh, because what are they going to do? They're going to go back to verses four through eight and said, I had this experience and this experience and this experience and this experience. How dare you tell me I wasn't a Christian? And what can you say? You could say all of those things are, are possible to experience and not be saved. All of them. Also, look back at Hebrews 6 again, verses 7 through 8. I'm almost done. It says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it was cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Just to kind of explain that a little bit, the soil here, the earth is the soul. And the rain that falls on it is all the things that we talked about in verses four through eight. Right, verses four and five. Like the, the, you know, the, the goodness of the word of God, taste of the word, goodness of the word of God, experience of the, the Holy Spirit, all of those different things. That's the rain. And when that rain falls on good soil, it produces a good crop. But when those things fall on soil, And it produces thorns. It's evidence of something else. You see, it isn't the rain that is the problem. It's what the rain brings forth that is evidence that the soil is bad. Here's the thing. We know that God's word always accomplishes that for which it is sent. Isaiah 55. I tell myself that every time before I get up to preach. The word of God will accomplish what he has set forth to accomplish. And oftentimes in some people's lives, the Word of God is sent to accomplish this: separating the wheat from the tares, separating those who are our God's and those who aren't, removing ignorance so that you cannot stand before God and say, I didn't know. So here's the last point: it's very, very, very short. How can I have true confidence? Now, we hear this warning, and it shakes us. It's a hard teaching to hear. We all see this, and we're thinking, man, I don't want this to be true about me. It's interesting that I say in the beginning, I said last week, that I want you to be confident in your your salvation, and then I continue to give you a bunch of reasons why you should question it. But here's the real question. How can I have confidence that I'm saved and not be wrong? That's what we all want to know, right? Remember what we spoke about last week, the idea that Jesus is our high priest. See, you can have confidence in your salvation when you humbly come to the end of yourself and rely solely on Jesus. Trust in this, that your standing before God is not because of you. The only way that you can be seen as good in the eyes of God is because of your high priest, Jesus, who is good for you. Not your good deeds. You stand before God, not because of your good deeds. Please, not because of your good deeds. talking to two students like an hour ago. And somebody said, don't you want to go to heaven? Like someone told them, don't you want to go to heaven? But you got to do all these things. Like no! No! Jesus died so that you wouldn't have to offer your own sacrifices. We worship God because we are saved, not so that we will be. When I die, And I will one day. And so will all of you. Statistics say that one out of every one person dies. There we go. Slowly processing. When I die, I will stand before God. If you were to ask me, why should I let you in? There is only one proper response. Because Jesus was good enough in my place and his death and resurrection forgives me of my sins and that is it. That's it. If your answer begins with because I, no. It's because Jesus. And that's a promise of God. Do you know that you can have confidence in this truth because God has made an oath and a promise to you and to me? Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hopes set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It is impossible for God to lie to you. You and I have incredible confidence that because of Jesus Christ, I have nothing to fear. You should only fear if your faith is in anything but him. If your faith is somewhat in Jesus, it's not enough. If Jesus is the motivation for you to do good enough stuff, like if he's kind of like, you know, if he's like the stepstool that allows you to get to the top shelf of righteousness, that's not enough. He's either all your hope or he is none of it. Do not place your faith in your church attendance, your, your Bible memory, your, 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 your good deeds. But if you can say this with honesty, I put no confidence in my flesh or my performance. I know I am not good enough and I never will be, but I trust that he was good enough for me and he is good enough for me and I trust in his sacrifice in my place. Then I hope you know that you have a high priest that will never fail you. And no matter what this life brings, you can have confidence because Jesus never failed. And you can have a confidence and an assurance that this world cannot shake. There's a lot of people in this world that think they're going to heaven. Not everybody that's talking about heaven is going there. But here's what I want you to know. Your faith is in Christ and only in Christ. You can have a confidence and an assurance and and a boldness that no matter what you go through in life, God will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Ever. And you can tell people, don't put your faith in a prayer. Don't put your faith in being baptized. Don't put your faith in anything other than relying on Jesus. And you're good. And if you're in this room and you're not sure, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, or if, you're, if you've been trying to do it in your own strength, I want you to know that while the door is open, run to it. Don't leave this place thinking that you'll have another chance. Because remember, there's a point where God will stop offering Run through the door while it's open. If you need to talk to somebody, talk to me. Talk to Jay. Talk to Christy. Talk to Rebecca. Talk to Kayla. Talk to Haley. Talk to Brandon. Talk to Brock. Talk to Aaron. Talk. There's literally, like, a bajillion adults in here who can talk to you. There's no excuse. We're gonna go to Chick Fil A. Talk to us at Chick Fil A. I love you guys. I'm so passionate about this because I love you. And I want to, and I know I'm rambling and I'm sorry, but I want to know that when I lay my head down at night, that I was faithful with what God asked me to do. And I was faithful to tell you the truth. And what you do with that truth is not on me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this night. Thank you for the assurance that we have in Jesus. Thank you that he was good enough in our place where we aren't. That the death we should have died, he died for all of us. And because of that, we can be seen as righteous, not of our own effort or of our own works or of our own deeds, but because of the righteousness of Jesus in our place. And God, we thank you for that truth. And God, if there's anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with you, God, I ask that you do not let them leave this place without one. God, give us confidence and give us boldness. God, I ask these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to the Central Students Podcast. For more information on how to take your next step, visit us online at centralsanford.net slash students.